Well, 20-somethings, right? 20-somethings culture. You know, youth that don't live independently from their parents. That the average age of marriage is now in their late 20s. 20-somethings that wander from tavern to tavern. Sexual promiscuity is rampant. And there is little interest among 20-somethings in spiritual things. Right, I'm a typical preacher, railing about youth culture and about millennials, right? Yeah, amen there. (laughs) But what if I told you, David Emke, that I'm not talking about Appleton, Wisconsin in 2021. Instead, I'm referring to 20-somethings in Northampton, Massachusetts in 1729. See, these were the children and grandchildren of the Puritans, still living with their parents in their 20s. The average age of marriage was the late 20s at that time. They wandered from tavern to tavern. Sexual promiscuity was rampant, and there was little interest among 20-somethings in Northampton, Massachusetts, in spiritual things. And these were the children and grandchildren of the Puritans where everyone went to church, where it was a fire in these people's bones to move across the ocean to come to the United States for religious freedom. And now what has become of their children and grandchildren? Sometimes we think that wandering from God is a new phenomenon. We always lament the younger generation. That's what you're supposed to do, right? But this happened even in Puritan New England 300 years ago. What if I told you it was also going on in Jerusalem 2,500 years ago? See, today we're going to see the start of a reformation. We're going to see a society change. And what did it start with? That's the question we're going to find out in this chapter in Ezra. And what do we learn from this that might affect us individually? Affect us as a church? And then maybe bleed out into the city or our nation, the world. What can we learn from Ezra about the seeds of reform. Let's see, shall we? Ezra chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, I'm going to start with, and then I'll keep going as we go on in um, the sermon. So let's look here first at verses 1 through 10. Please bear with me as I try all these names. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Etub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Merioth, son of Zariah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest, This Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe, skilled in the law of Moses, 
that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked. For the hand of the Lord, his God, was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem. In the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers, and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. For the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it. And to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. The word of the Lord. If you're just joining us, we're going through Ezra and Nehemiah this fall. And all the way into the new year. And we see that these two books have three acts. And we are starting act two today. So if you're just joining us, you've come at a good time. Let me just review Act 1, which was Ezra chapter 1 through 6. Here we have the people of Israel that have been in captivity in Babylon. And now, in chapter 1, 50,000 of these exiles come back to Jerusalem by the order and decree of Cyrus to rebuild the house of the Lord. They faced, when they came back, opposition among the locals that lived there. They faced political opposition. But God was faithful in his steadfast love. And in 20 years, they completed the temple. And we saw a people relying on the steadfast love of God, worshiping him, praising him, celebrating the Passover. That ended chapter 6. And now we're in Act 2. And we're going to see this kind of cycle of people coming into the land, facing opposition, and then overcoming the opposition and praising God happens in each one of the Acts, Acts 1, Act 2, and Act 3, which will be the book of Nehemiah. Here, Act 2 again starts like Act 1 did, away from Jerusalem, in the heart of Persia and Babylon. And here in Act 2, we've also fast-forwarded 57 years later. And now, instead of Zerubbabel, the one that was going to lead the building of the temple, we have Ezra. And if we're wondering, 57 years later, and the people that are reading this for the first time, you might be wondering, how is Jerusalem doing 57 years later? These exiles that have come back, and their children, and maybe even their grandchildren. Have they remained faithful? Now, if we cheated and read ahead, it's okay to read ahead. I hope you're reading the book of Ezra. We see that there are problems going on in Jerusalem. But we don't know that yet. All we know is a person that is being appointed by the Lord to lead a group back into Jerusalem 57 years later. It's kind of hard maybe sometimes us to picture 57 years. A lot can happen in 57 years. What was 57 years ago? I won't ask you to raise your hand to say if you were still alive 57 years ago. But that was 1964. The Surgeon General just came out to say smoking may be hazardous to your health. That was 57 years ago. The Civil Rights Act passed in 1964, outlawing Jim Crow laws of the South. Nelson Mandela 
was sentenced to life in prison in 1964. It was the beginning of the counterculture, the sexual revolution, protests against Vietnam. Ed Setzer, distinguished chair of the Billy Graham Institute at Wheaton College, commenting about the moves of religion in America, said religion in America was going through a major shift in this part, in this time in American history. A lot of the mainline denomination pastors were retiring, actually retiring in droves at this time. Many youth were walking away from their faith. This is just before some of the revivals that we saw in the late 60s and early 70s. The Jesus movement, Calvary Chapel, the Vineyard movement, the rise of evangelicalism. Ed Setzer, commenting of these cycles in American history, says that we are on the verge of another one. These cycles go in 60-year phases. What it might look like, religion in America right now, he does not know. I do not know. But many think we're on a verge, and we've seen a major retirement among pastors over the past year and two years because of COVID, because of lots of different issues, because pastors are getting older. We're seeing the same kind of cycles happening and many walking away from their faith. What will reform look like? What was happening in the heart of this leader? These people that went in to the land in Jerusalem seeking reform in Israel. What was happening in his heart? What might be needing to happen in our hearts in these times? Well, we've been waiting, haven't we, for the namesake of this book to come on the scene. And here he has. It's taken six chapters. And here he is in chapter 7. If we know a little bit about Ezra and Nehemiah, we do think about building projects, right? Temples and walls and buildings inside the city gates of Jerusalem. And you think if you really want to rebuild the nation state of Israel after they've been conquered by the Assyrians and conquered by the Babylonians and conquered by the Persians, what kind of people do you need to rebuild it? Right? We need architects. We need military leaders. We need city planners. And here in chapter 7, we don't get any of that. We get a priest. Not just any priest. One that really knows the law. Great, what a combo. A lawyer and a priest combined. That's who you get? Compared to Zerubbabel, the leader of the movement of building the temple, and Nehemiah, the one that builds the wall, this is who we have, Ezra, in the heart, in the middle, in Act 2, Ezra. And in fact, we get more biography on Ezra than we do about Zerubbabel and Nehemiah, these builders. Again, we see that Ezra is not just any priest. He's in the lineage of Aaron, who of course served as the chief priest during the time of Moses. Remember, priests are intercessors. Intercessors between God and the people. They set apart their lives, their diet, their cleanliness, where they live, their practices. They do many, many things to set themselves apart 
in order to be able to be the intercessor between God and the people. Might be a hard thing for us to understand in our culture today, so let me use a crude example. It's like a Green Bay Packer player. They have a certain diet. They spend certain hours working out. They live in certain places. They exclude themselves from certain choices. They do all these things to be on that team. So what? So we can partake in the glory of the Green Bay Packers based on how they act and what choices they do. They're our intercessors, right? So that we can also revel in Packer glory. And you see that Ezra has set himself apart too. In chapter 2 of this book, we didn't talk about it very much, I'll talk about it now, that we also saw other priests that wanted to be these intercessors, but they were not in the lineage of Aaron, so they were excluded. I think it's one that shows the specialness of being a priest, but more than that, why these people specifically in the lineage of Aaron were allowed to be priests and others were not, it shows God's preservation preservation in the midst of so much chaos in Israel, that he had still preserved the lineage of Aaron. In the midst of the sin of Israel, in the midst of its ruin of being conquered by three different nations, in the midst of its exile, here is Ezra in Persia being faithful. Again, back to my crude example, it would be like another great quarterback coming out of Packer lineage. Right? We had great ones. Favre and Rodgers. Wouldn't we be amazed if there was another one that played for 10, 15 years for the Packers? That is how amazing this is. That this lineage has continued. And this just isn't anyone. This is an amazing priest. Here he is in a foreign empire among different religions, among things that they're trying to, the Babylonians are trying to influence these people. If we read the book of Daniel, we see that. But still, he has the favor of the Lord, and he remains faithful. He's a diplomat among the Persians. He's probably a secretary between the interactions going on in Judah with Artaxerxes. He's skilled in the law, as we said. That in Hebrew means he's rapid with it. He knows the answers in the Torah quickly. This is the guy you want on your Bible trivia team, Ezra. But more than that, more than the knowledge of the word, he sets his heart to it. That, that language is so rich. Verse 10, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. That means his whole being. And more than that, it says, he set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it. It just wasn't just knowing things. It wasn't just knowledge. He actually lived it out. This is a man that set his whole self to knowing God's word and living God's word in his life. Who do we want to shape our communities? 
to help and reform? Is this the kind of resume that we want? Come on, where's his 40 time? What can he bench press? How many people does he have following him on Twitter? What's his charisma? What are his references? Where did he go to college? No, the man's resume is one that followed the Lord and did it and knew his word. And the hand of the Lord was on him. And we see this refrain constantly through this. The hand of the Lord was on him. The hand of the Lord was on him. The hand of the Lord was on him. That is the resume for reform in Israel. Solomon Stoddard was a legend in Northampton, Massachusetts. He was there for decades. He was very charismatic. The people in Northampton, Massachusetts and Western Massachusetts loved him. He was a celebrity. And that's what pastors were back in those days in Puritan New England, celebrities. And when Solomon Stoddard died... His grandson took over the church in Northampton, Massachusetts. His grandson was Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards did not have charisma. (laughs) Very bookish. He loved the Bible. His sermon delivery was very monotone, as much as they might have told you in your English classes in public school with sinners in the hands of an angry God. It was probably very monotone. They said that Edwards would look at his text like this and read from his manuscript in a monotone voice. I'm thinking about doing this from now on. You guys would enjoy this. Maybe I'll have as much influence as Jonathan Edwards had. That was his delivery. But he was the one that led the reformation of the youth in Northampton that were in so much trouble. He met with them. He gave them the word. He started small groups for the youth to read the Bible. And the youth revival led to a revival in Northampton. Many argue that it led to a revival throughout New England, and then throughout the whole United States, known as the Great Awakening. A monotone, man following God, Jonathan Edwards. We might say, well, I'm not Jonathan Edwards. I'm not like a priest like Ezra. I don't know the law in that way. I want to challenge you right now. Really? We read from 1 Peter earlier in the the assurance of pardon. I'll read again from 1 Peter. As you come to him, he's talking about you. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be what? A holy 
priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I don't know if you know this, but the great high priest has come, Jesus Christ, and he intercedes for us right now so that we can have direct relationship with God. The veil that only the priest could go in was torn in two that we can be in the holy of holies, that we can be in God's presence because of Christ, that we can be priests. And we can have the strength through him to minister to others. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. How much greater the law has been written on our hearts as Christians. The Spirit has come into us so that we can be able to discern his word and have the power to live it out. How much greater do we have it than Ezra on this side of the cross? That we are priests and the law is written on our hearts. I don't know if you've noticed this, uh, but our church has been taken over by children. And it's kind of crazy. I think we're saying like one-third of the church, we're about that, one-third, and maybe more are children. Um, and that's a big responsibility. We always talk about a big, you know, a big game. Like, we're, we are going to reform the city, we're going to reform our nation. Well, the truth is, the biggest responsibility before us is loving our kids in our midst, you have to realize in Northampton, these Bible studies started mostly because the parents started praying for their children that were wandering from the faith, that they would come to know Christ. Do we want our children, even our adult children, for some of you in this church, to know Christ? That the word penetrate and saturate our lives and how we speak to our kids. That it would not just be something that we know, but that our whole being is behind what we are learning, our heart, and we are living it out. Oh, Dan, that's easy for you to say. You're a pastor, right? You probably give theological lessons at the dinner table every night. No, I do not. We might read scripture at night, and that's very good. But I think the number one thing that Aaron and I can pass on to our girls is that we show them that we need it. That we live it. One of the biggest ways I can show my girls that Christ lives in me and dwells in me is when I say, I am sorry. I need Christ in my life. And that I would live out scripture to them in my life. Ultimately, the Lord 
is in charge or whether my kids know him or not. But he has called me as a parent, as he's called you as parents, to teach your children. If we want a generation that follows the Lord, we have to seek out God ourselves as parents and live it out in our lives. And we as a church want to help and support you in this. It is not easy. But the sense of it not being easy is where we can rely on Christ as parents to teach our children. Well, now, first we have this biography of Ezra and what happens with these people that are going. And then in verses 11 all the way through verses 26, it actually switches from Hebrew um, to, uh, to uh, oh, why am I just blanking? What it was? Aramaic. Thank you, David. I was bringing up the name. It switches from Hebrew to Aramaic as the decree is made by Artaxerxes. So I'm just going to read a little bit of this decree Verse 14 and verses 25 and 26. Let's look at verse 14 of the decree. First, I'll start in verse 11, then 14. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Verse 14. For you are sent by the king and his seven counselors to make inquiries about Judah and Jerusalem according to the law of your God, which is in your hand. And then, let's go to verse 25. And you, Ezra, according to the wisdom of your God that is in your hand, appoint magistrates and judges who may judge all the people in the provinces beyond the river, all such as known the laws of your God. And those who do not know them, you shall teach. Whoever will not obey the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be strictly executed on him, whether for death or for banishment or for confiscation of his goods or for imprisonment. So again, we see the cycles of the decrees like we saw with Cyrus to Zerubbabel and to the Israelites. Now we see the cycle of of a decree from Artaxerxes to Ezra. They provide things for the temple like they did um, for for the Israelites going back into the land to build the temple. But there is another aspect that is in this passage, in this decree, that is not in the other one. It's specifically on the teaching aspect and the law aspect that Ezra is supposed to bring into the land. See, there is a measurement of how Israel is doing. And even the Persian king says it should be measured in this way. By the law of Moses, the Pentateuch, the law of the Lord. That is the standard that Israel and Jerusalem should be measured by. And it says this is the law. It's not just law in verse 14, but it's also wisdom as we see in verse 25. This isn't just some strict thing. This is also something that is played out into real life. Wisdom that Ezra has to play out into the people and discern what to do. And it has teeth. He appoints magistrates with the ability to judge the people based on abiding by God's word in the law. I mean, we've talked about this before, but I'm going to talk about it again. This is perplexing. 
Why would a Persian king, a non-follower of Yahweh, appoint Ezra in saying this is a good thing to appoint God's law into the land? I'm going to give a few reasons. One, he might really like Ezra and trust him. And Ezra wanted this to happen in the land. And so because he trusts Ezra, he says, okay, Ezra, whatever you ask and whatever you want, it's done. Go ahead and do it and bring it back into Israel. That's one possibility, and I think it's very likely. Two, the Persian system. It was kind of you do you. That was the kind of empire that they had. Unlike the Babylonians and Syrians that just kind of conquered and made them do it their way. The Persians said, okay, Go back, do your culture, do your religion, in the hopes that the culture flourishes, that they would be able to give money back to Persia. Does that make sense? And then the third reason that we see constantly talked about here in Scripture, the most important one, is that God directed the Persian kings to do this. That God, to be able to bring reform to Israel, shaped it that maybe probably definitely that what happened was artaxerxes was able to see favor in ezra appoint him to this position and ezra being a priest one that could reform the people by the law was brought back to a people that were wandering from god's law and i find this interesting for us Sometimes we have this idea that there are aspects of the world that are outside of God's control. Government, our schools, the DMV, I don't know. There's things that you go, they're so bad, there's no way God has sovereignty and control over these areas. But what he's showing here, even in this wicked Persian empire... I encourage you, read Daniel, read how bad it was at times. God was still in control and directing. Ten years ago, Craig Moss and Mike Foster, guys that I met when I was in seminary, pastors in California, started a ministry called Triple X Church. They started this ministry to combat pornography put in accountability software, help Christians work through pornography addictions. Their materials are great. I encourage anyone that might be struggling in this area to look at Craig Gross and Mike Foster, Triple X Church, to work through these issues. But one thing that they also did is they went to pornography conventions and conferences and put up booths at these places. I'm not advising us to do that. Maybe God would call us to do that, but that's what they did. And one time at one of these pornography conventions, with their booth, Triple X Church, talking about Jesus, a very famous pornography director came to the booth because he wanted to know what these guys were all about. And this guy said, I, you know what? I found out, this director said, I found out that these guys were missionaries. And I know a little bit about Jesus, and it sounds like they were like Jesus coming to us lepers. 
They formed a friendship. And this director said, can I direct a commercial for your ministry for free? And you know what commercial I want to direct? I want to direct a commercial that helps keep children away from pornography. Even a fallen world sees the beauty of the law. Even a fallen world can look at us as the church and say, thank you for loving enemy. Thank you for your sexual ethics. Thank you for your generosity. Thank you for following the moral law. Yeah, there were moments that the Persian Empire opposed Israel. Again, read Daniel to see the opposition. But they also saw the goodness of these people that followed the true God, Yahweh. If we live faithfully as the church, could people in our workplaces, in our public schools, in our government, in our neighborhood, see, you know what? They might have what's best for our world, for society, for our neighborhood, for my family, for my soul. What if we lived like Ezra? Not condemning the world, not avoiding the world, not any of those things, but we actually lived in it, set apart. The word penetrating our hearts. What might God use us for? Let's read these last two verses. Here it switches from Artaxerxes and Aramaic to Ezra in Hebrew. Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who put such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers. I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Here, Ezra is accounting that God directed the Persians, this king of king, Artaxerxes, to have him and others go back into the land with the law to beautify the house of God to reform Jerusalem. And Ezra is praising God for his direction and his sovereignty over these things. How much greater should our praise to God be of his steadfast love because what he has done for us. See, God did not just send a teacher of the law to us. He sent the law himself to us. 
God did not just send his son hundreds of miles away. He sent him from heaven to earth to dwell among us sinners. You know what? He didn't just come to reform us, simply to change us, to make sure that we abided by the law. Instead, he was the law for us. He fulfilled what we could not do so that we would not simply be reformed, but instead we would be changed from darkness to light, that we would go from death to life. You know how beautiful this is? It says here, he beautified the house of the Lord. Do you know what Christ did for us, the church? He beautified us that we would be a bride. Think about that picture. That we would be radiant like a bride. That is how much the bridegroom does for us. That we would be beautiful to the world. That is the kind of reform our God does to us, greater than Ezra. I love this last part. I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was on me. And I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with, with me. Many of us might say, well, I don't have the courage like Ezra. I'm not a scribe. I'm not a priest. The hand of the Lord, is it on me? Again, I want to challenge each one of you this morning. How wrong we are. The hand of the Lord is not simply just on us. Instead, the Spirit lives in us. That we are all priests. That the law is in our hearts. That we are the beautiful bride of Christ. And then we have the courage to lead reform in our families, in our church, in our neighborhood, in our city. And I'll leave the main idea to the end. If you're going to get anything, this is it. Christ entering as the perfect priest that interceded for us shows us God's steadfast love and gives us the courage to lead reform because we are united to him.